Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. The Feast of Corpus Christi, or the Solemnity of the Most Holy Body and Blood of Christ, is this weekend. So on this episode, Bishop dives deep into what we will celebrate. From the 13th century saint who initiated the spread of Eucharistic devotion, to how Pope Urban IV and St. Thomas Aquinas got involved, and laid the framework for this special feast. Bishop also talks about St. John Paul II's devotion to the Eucharist and how it impacted him as a seminarian studying in Rome. Then, you may have heard about this on the news, both Catholic and secular. There's been some controversy among U.S. bishops about a proposed document on Eucharistic coherence. Since Bishop Rhodes is the chair of the Committee on Doctrine, which is the committee that would be preparing the document, He's able to give an inside view on the process, ranging from what will be discussed at the June USCCB meeting to the purpose and scope of the document. If you have a question you'd like Bishop to answer on a future episode, submit it at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our Bishop. Thank you again for joining us. We're, we're doing a, a split. We're, we're Spanning the diocese in this episode. So I'm I'm in Fort Wayne. You're in South Bend. Yes, I don't think I ever taped from the South Bend office before. So, but since I was up here, I'm glad that uh, that this was able to be accommodated. For sure, yeah. So uh, we've got some breaking news. I guess it's it's been out for a little while now, but we haven't had a chance to talk about it since it was announced that the dispensation from the obligation to attend mass has been lifted throughout the state of Indiana. It's actually going to be effective June 11th, which is the Solemnity of the Most Sacred Heart of Jesus. For those a little confused by all this, maybe explain. The dispensation was for COVID-19. Can you explain? Yes. Um, bishops throughout the world really uh, had dispensations from the Sunday obligation a year ago or more than a year ago. And um it was meant to be only temporary, of course, because the obligation to attend mass is such an important one, but it was because of COVID that a dispensation was given, including in our diocese and the dioceses of Indiana. And we did it together as Indiana bishops. So lifting the dispensation, we also wanted to do together. And we met a few weeks ago. And since the, um, you know, people have had the opportunity to be vaccinated and the uh, rates of COVID are down. And considering all the different aspects of this, we decided to lift that dispensation. So the obligation for Catholics to attend Mass is now reinstated on June 11th, as you said, the Feast of the Sacred Heart. So that weekend, which will be June 12th and 13th, all are expected to attend Mass there's obviously exceptions, as always. There's exceptions for people who are sick or people who are unable to get to Mass. I mean, those those exceptions are already there in the law of the church. We've noticed a significant increase in Mass attendance already in the last few months, but I'm hoping that Mass attendance will continue to grow. And would you say that it's it's okay to be extra cautious right now that if you are feeling sick, like it's okay to stay home. I, when, when I think maybe a couple of years ago, you got a cold or, you know, maybe aren't feeling too well, you got a fever or something, you think, ah, oh, it's not that big of a deal. I'll go to church. Maybe, maybe this is, is not the time to push it. 
Right, exactly. I mean, if someone has a fever or someone has other symptoms, especially those related to COVID, they are excused. They should not come to mass because of protection of others. Yeah. And so then uh, masks are also optional for those that have been vaccinated. Is that the case? That's, that's correct. Masks are now optional. You know, we gave an option to pastors if they felt in their own parish, people who are still reticent, they could designate a part of the church where masks are required and the social distancing for those people who are anxious about um, being too close to others or close to those who, who aren't wearing masks. So, so that's, I know I just had a mass in a parish where that was being done where one of the transepts was, Mm -hmm. um, was for people who still wanted to be socially distanced and, and only be near people who have masks on. So trying to be flexible here, trying to be aware of different situations and different parishes. So we leave that to the uh, discretion of the pastor. Okay. And then the sign of peace, what will be happening with that? Yeah, we do have um, allow for the sign of peace to be exchanged again, um, recommending that it be without physical touch. Obviously, if they're members of the same family, Mm -hmm. they can shake hands or hug or whatever. But but with others, it's recommended that you can do the sign of peace without physical contact. You can Mm -hmm. do a little bow and say, peace be with you. Okay. And then what about the precious blood distribution? Yes, we're still not distributing the precious blood. I think we're going to wait. We're going to wait on that until, you know, how risky it is for transmission of COVID. Um, you know, there's different thoughts on that, but but I think it's we're taking the safer course and waiting until later to allow for the distribution of Holy Communion with the chalice. All right. Very good. Thank you for the update there. And uh, for more information, people can check out the diocesan website for the complete details on that, or just check with your local parish what they're doing. Like you said, there's there's a little room for parishes to have more caution, or I, I think it mentioned in that statement was like if you wanted to have a special mass for maybe required masks or something like that, uh, up to the individual parishes and the needs of that parish. So people can check that out. Uh, it kind of segues nicely into uh, our next topic, which is this Sunday, June 6th, is the Solemnity of the Most Holy Body and Blood of Christ, also known as the Feast of Corpus Christi, which I feel like the idea of processions, in my mind, I, I could be wrong on this, it, it's a, kind of an old school thing that they used to do, and I don't remember them doing it growing up, and then it's maybe made a comeback recently. Is, is that the case? Or maybe it, was I just unaware of it happening? No, I think you're right. Okay. Uh, I think there are many more parishes that have Corpus Christi processions today than for example um 30 years ago sure but um i love to to uh to be in a corpus christi procession to carry the monstrance and i think it's a beautiful custom this feast always has a lot of special meaning for me because um of saint john paul ii the first extended conversation i i had with pope john paul was on the when i served for him at the feast of corpus christi at saint peter's oh wow my first year as a as a seminarian in Rome, and that was in 1980. And then a couple of years later, I was his deacon for the Feast of Corpus Christi at St. John Lateran Basilica. And then 
uh, walked next to him on the in the uh, Corpus Christi procession from the Basilica of St. John Lateran to the Basilica of St. Mary Major. So those are really, I don't know, I guess I would say really important uh, experiences that, that really touched my life. And I think every year when we celebrate Corpus Christi, I, I think of St. John Paul II and and his devotion to the Eucharist and how how impactful that was on my life as a seminarian and has continued to be since then. And I guess maybe we should back up a little bit here and explain what is Corpus Christi. It seems maybe a little redundant that we're celebrating the body and blood of Jesus at a mass that we celebrate the body and blood of Jesus every day of of the year. Yeah. What what is yeah. this feast about? Well, you know, I think it might be interesting for the listeners to to know a little bit about the history of of uh, of this feast in the yeah. church, because you know we might think, well, we celebrate the institution of the Holy Eucharist on Holy Thursday, mm-hmm. so why another feast? And I think part of it is, you know, at the Mass of the Lord's Supper on Holy Thursday, a lot of the emphasis is on the gospel, which is the washing of the feet, and mm-hmm the obligation of Christian charity, obviously the Eucharist is, but, but to have a a feast that um, just is specifically focused on, on the body and blood of Jesus is something that really goes back to the 13th century. And um, I think a lot of people don't, don't know about a saint who really was the one who kind of initiated this. And her name was St. Juliana. As a matter of fact, this year I had huh. a, a young woman that I confirmed and she took Juliana as her confirmation name. And I thought, wow, this is very unusual. And she was from Belgium. She's sometimes called St. Juliana of Liege. Liege is a city in Belgium. Okay. Sometimes she's called St. Juliana de Cornillon, Cornillon, which is the place where the convent that she lived was. But in any case, she was born near Liege in Belgium in the late 12th century. And the Diocese of Liege was a diocese that had a strong devotion to the Blessed Sacrament, even before, you know, Juliana was born. Hmm. There were theologians there who had, you know, written about the Holy Eucharist um, and its importance. And there were groups of women who, in Liege, who were dedicated to Eucharistic adoration and fervent reception of Holy Communion and a lot of priests. There was just uh, who were exemplary, and these women would live together, and they were devoted to prayer, to to works of charity. So that was kind of the background. And Juliana was an orphan, and she, mm. at the age of five, and she and her sister were then taken in by a convent of Augustinian nuns, and she became an Augustinian nun, and uh, she was very intelligent. She was very learned. She studied. Latin and could read the works of, of, of fathers of the church and like St. Augustine. So she was a very intelligent young woman. At the same time, she had this uh, propensity for contemplation. I mean, she was a woman of prayer and she would have a profound experience of our Lord's presence when she would pray before the Blessed Sacrament. And she would often meditate on the words of Jesus uh, at the end of Matthew's gospel where, where Jesus said to the apostles, before he ascended into heaven, and lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. And she would, you know, meditate on that as how Jesus is with us in the Holy Eucharist. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, still as a teenager, again, she was in this convent. She had a vision. And then she had it several times while she was praying before the Blessed Sacrament. And it was a vision of a, a moon. And the moon had a dark stripe across it. And our Lord made it known to her what that meant. The moon was a symbol of the life of the church on earth. And this uh, dark stripe, this line, represented the absence of a liturgical feast about the Eucharist. So Juliana received that message from our Lord. And um, she didn't really do anything at first. She just continued her life as a nun and grew in her devotion and different virtues and her love for the blessed sacrament. But after about 20 years, she, she did confide that she had received these visions. And uh, by this time she was the prioress of the convent. So she shared with a few other women, what she had experienced and also uh, a priest uh, who was a, uh, at a church in Liege. And then they consulted theologians and priests and they were very encouraging. The bishop also w- learned about it, the Bishop of Liege. And uh, at first he was hesitant, as any bishop would be when you talk about private revelations. Mm-hmm. But she accept- he accepted Juliana's proposal and introduced the Feast of Corpus Christi in his diocese. See, back then, bishops could establish local feasts. You can't do that today. I mean, it has to come from Rome. But back in those days, in the Middle Ages, bishops had that authority. So, um, and then some other bishops, nearby bishops, did the same thing. Now, at the same time, Juliana was opposed by some of the clergy and even and others. Um, and she therefore left the convent with some of her companions. And for 10 years, from 1248 to 1258, she would stay at different monasteries of Cistercian nuns. And they saw her piety, they saw her humility. And um, so her sanctity spread, but also at the same time, Eucharistic devotion spread. She died in the year 1258. And evidently in the cell, where she died, the Blessed Sacrament was exposed. And uh, so even at the end of her life, she was contemplating Jesus in the Eucharist and uh, whom she had always loved throughout her life and who she adored throughout her life. Interestingly, there was an archdeacon in Liege where they were celebrating this feast of Corpus Christi, and he became a pope, the pope. Oh, wow. So, I mean, this is very providential. Yeah. His name was Jacques Pantaleon of Troy, and he took the name Urban IV. And uh, so he became Pope just six years after St. Juliana died, and he instituted the Feast of Corpus Christi as a feast of the Universal Church, Hmm. Pope Urban IV in 1264. It would be celebrated on Thursday, the Thursday after Pentecost. That's where it usually, that's when it was was celebrated. And even when he instituted it, he did refer very discreetly to the mystical experiences of St. Juliana. So that's how the feast began. Um, it's interesting, this Pope, Urban IV, went to Orvieto, actually he was living in Orvieto, and celebrated the feast of Corpus Christi. And Orvieto, some some of the listeners might know, a town in Italy, had a famous uh, corporal. The corporal is the cloth upon which mass is celebrated, where the patent and the chalice are 
are put on the corporal. Well, in Orvieto, they had this famous corporal that have has stains of blood on it, and it's in the cathedral of Or Orvieto, and and the Pope had had that uh, corporal brought to the Orvieto Cathedral. The mir the miracle happened in nearby Bolsena. And in that miracle, a priest was consecrating the, the bread and the wine, and he was having strong doubts about the real presence of the body and blood of Christ. And a few drops of blood came forth from the consecrated host. So there was that Eucharistic miracle. So the blood from the host poured on the, on the corporal. And that corporal is kept in a reliquary in the Cathedral of Orvieto. So that's all connected, you know, that was the same. So he celebrated the Feast of Corpus Christi there in Orvieto. And he also asked one of the greatest theologians ever, St. Thomas Aquinas, to compose the texts of the divine office for the Feast of Corpus Christi. By the divine office, that's the liturgy of the hours, as well as the prayers for the Mass of Corpus Christi. So St. Thomas Aquinas did that. You may know these are masterpieces in, in church music. We still sing them today. The Pange Lingua. The Pange Lingua, we, sell it, we sing on Holy Thursday at the end of Mass when we're carrying the Blessed Sacrament to the altar of repose. And I think most Catholics are familiar with the last two verses of the Pange Lingua, the Tantum Ergo, which we always huh. sing at uh, benediction. Well, these are real masterpieces, and they're, they're hymns in praise of the Holy Eucharist, gratitude for the Blessed Sacrament. So those were composed by St. Thomas Aquinas at the request of, of Pope uh, Urban IV for the Feast of Corpus Christi. Back then, you know, the church wasn't as, how would I say, as, as necessarily as centralized as it is today. So even though Pope Urban made it a celebration for the universal church. It was probably celebrated in, you know, certain regions, but it took a little while for it to really develop so that it was so appreciated by the people that it truly became a universal, universal feast. I hope this has been interesting for the listeners to, to learn about St. Juliana and how this, this feast began and uh, the role of St. Thomas Aquinas and, and the role of um, of Pope Urban the Fourth. So, any idea why they picked the Thursday after Pentecost for it? You know what? I don't know. It's now the it's it's been changed. It's now the Thursday after Trinity Sunday. Actually, in the United States, I don't think it was ever observed on the Thursday after Trinity Sunday. It's okay. always been the Sunday after Trinity Sunday. So we uh. celebrated on Sunday. But originally, it was the Thursday after Pentecost. Now, I know in, in uh, Rome, we always celebrated it on Thursday. After, when I celebrate, when I served for John Paul II, it was on Thursday. It was the Thursday after uh, Trinity Sunday. And then you talked about processions. Can you explain what a procession is, especially a Eucharistic procession? Yes, the, the sacred host is placed in a monstrance, and the priest or bishop, uh, carries the monstrance in a procession uh, outside, usually through the streets, and people are lined up and they, they pray and sing, and people are either walking in the procession or they're 
on the side of the street. You know, in certain more Catholic countries, it's a national feast and they pave the streets with flowers and they have banners hanging from buildings. And I mean, in Poland and and in Spain and other countries, more Catholic countries, I mean, it is a really beautiful and joyous celebration. So it really in Latin America, certain places in Latin America, in the United States, of course, it's not a national holiday. We're not, uh, you know, but but we do see. um more devotion. I've uh, participated in Corpus Christi processions in our diocese, and and I've seen the the faith and devotion of people. I think it's very good, and I always think it's the I, you know, the symbolism of it is we bring Christ out into the streets, and and really what we're called to do when you think about it, every time we receive Holy Communion, we carry Christ within us, and we're to bring Christ into the world. So I think it, there's a connection there. There's a deep meaning there of the Eucharistic procession. Do you have any plans for this coming Corpus Christi? Yes. Well, actually, it's an interesting uh, that you asked that. We have a parish in the diocese that um, that has the name Blessed Sacrament Parish. Sure. So, And that's in Albion. So this year, they have a new social hall that I'll be blessing. I'll have Mass and I'm going to bless the hall, but between the mass and the blessing of the hall, we're going to have an outdoor procession there okay. in Albion. So I'm looking forward to that. All right. Well, I assume the general public is able to come to that procession if they'd like to join. Yes. In. Yeah. People, you're invited. Yep. The church is a new church, which I dedicated a few years ago. Beautiful new church uh, in Albion. And it's a small town of our diocese. And I'm just happy that we have a, a parish that is uh, has the, the title Blessed Sacrament. Yeah. All right. And the gospel for Corpus Christi comes from Mark chapter 14. And it kind of gives kind of an overview of you know being told to go to the upper room and then Jesus instructing the disciples to take this, this is my body and this is my blood and it ends with, then after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Yeah. It's a, you know, when you look at that gospel that we'll hear, the gospel of Mark, Mark's always pretty succinct. In this passage, I mean, it's very succinct when it gets to, it says how they prepared the Passover. And mm -hmm. that's important to remember that uh, the Last Supper was this in the setting of a Passover supper. And it would have the traditional elements of a Passover meal, you know. And um, so what Jesus did was pretty typical of the host at a, a Jewish banquet. And according to Mark, he said, Mark says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, said the blessing, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, take it, this is my body. So it's very succinct, but notice, it's really interesting, he took bread, said the blessing, broke it, and gave it to them. Those words or actions are identical to what Jesus had done in the two miracles of the multiplication of the loaves mm -hmm. and that are recounted in Mark's gospel in chapter six and chapter eight. It says, Jesus took bread, said the blessing, broke it and gave it to the people. So I think there's that, that that's important. And the, when it says said the blessing, that was basically at the Passover, a, a, a prayer of thanksgiving to God for, okay. you know, 
having provided for us. And, and the sharing of, of one loaf of bread, that's a sign of the fellowship that those who were present, that they were enjoying. And then at a Passover, the host would explain the different foods, et cetera. Well, Jesus's interpretation goes well beyond the meaning of the Passover in that he says, you know, take it. This is my body. So in a sense, what Jesus is doing, this is a prophecy of what's going to happen. He's anticipating the passion that would occur the next day. Take it. This is my body. So he's identifying the broken bread with his own body that's about to be broken Mm. on the cross. And in Hebrew, the word body isn't just the flesh. uh, It's the whole person. When they would use that word for body, it's it's the whole person as a physical being. So really, Jesus is revealing in those few words, take it, this is my body, that his death will be a gift of himself to them. And then by asking them to take it, in other words, to eat it, he's inviting them to receive this gift of himself into their very being. Now, at a Passover, of course, you have a lamb, and it was the blood of the lamb that save the Israelites from death. So Jesus's words reveal that he himself is the Paschal lamb whose blood will save the people from death. And the Passover wouldn't be complete without eating the Passover lamb. Hmm. And Jesus's sacrifice is complete only when his disciples eat his body and drink his blood. So Jesus invites them to share the one bread that is his body. He's drawing them into union with himself and with each other. And if we continue, St. Mark says, then he took a cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which will be shed for many. And as you probably know, it says Jesus gave thanks, and in Greek, that's the word eucharisteo, which is why we call this the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. The word Eucharist means thanksgiving. So that's the origin of the church's name for the sacri- sacrament, and it comes from those words that Jesus gave thanks. And when you think about wine from one cup, that was a sign of fellowship. The wine was always in the Old Testament and always a symbol of festivity and joy and abundance, divine life. And I think that's the same thing here, although something is added to it because the cup that Jesus will drink is his passion. And that, I think, is uh, is really important for us. Remember when Jesus was talking to James and John and he talked about could they drink from the cup that he's drinking? drink. That's referring to his sacrifice, his sufferings. And then Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant. He says, you know, they all drank from it. Well, it was forbidden for Jews to drink blood. That was unthinkable Hmm. because, you know, the Old Testament teaches that blood is sacred because it's the seat of life. In the book of Leviticus, it says the life of all flesh is in its blood, and it's blood that makes atonement for sins. 
So nothing could be offered to God more valuable than the blood of a living creature. Hmm. But Jesus is asking them to do what seemingly is forbidden by the law, to drink the blood of animals. They weren't allowed to do that. But but now we have Jesus is saying to drink the blood of, of himself, the blood of the Son of God, which is really to share in his own divine life. And notice he calls it, this is my blood of the covenant. Uh, remember when God established his covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, at the climax of the, of the Exodus, the blood of the bulls, the sacrificed animals, were, was sprinkled on the, water, on the altar, which represented God. And then uh, some of the blood was sprinkled on the people, so the covenant. And then they had a sacred meal. Well, Jesus saying, this is my blood of the covenant. We're talking here about the new covenant that Jeremiah, the prophet, prophesied, that there's now this, this, this communion, this kinship between God and his people, a covenant that can't be, be broken. And um, of course, Jesus says, which will be shed for many, Jesus's blood, which kind of signifies that his blood's going to be poured out. It's, it signifies his death violent death and his supreme gift of himself is made available to all of us. The gift of himself offered on the cross says um, it will be shed for many. It'll provide the forgiveness of sins that the old sacrifices of animals in the old covenant just foreshadowed this. And for many, you know, when he said will be shed for many, you can think back to Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant who said through his suffering, he would justify many and take away the sins of many. Hmm. Now, this doesn't mean a, a limited number. It's a Semitic expression that Jesus died for all. And then finally, Jesus says in the gospel, I shall not drink again the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is really interesting. I mean, in a sense, it's a vow. He's assuring the disciples that his passion will end in the joy of the resurrection. And wine is a symbol of the messianic banquet that was prophesied in the Old Testament. So Jesus is implying that his joy will not be complete until his disciples, present and future disciples, would be united with him in the glorious banquet in heaven. And that's why the church, we've always understood the Eucharist, not only making present something of the past, the passion, which it does, but it's also a foretaste mm. of the future, the full coming of God's kingdom. Notice Mark's account doesn't say, do this in memory of me. Right. Uh, you know, we do hear that in Luke's account and in Paul's account in his first letter to the Corinthians. But keep in mind, the people, the audience that Mark is writing to, they would have already been celebrating the Eucharist. They would have been celebrating the breaking of the bread, the Lord's Supper. So they were always already doing this in memory of him. Right. Well, and you mentioned the new covenant, and it reminded me an episode that we did where you walked through the different covenants. So maybe people can go refer back to that. That was October 23rd, 2019. It's been a while, but if you want to go back to yeah. that October 23rd, 2019 episode, talking about the covenants leading up to the, the new covenant. So 
Sure. Uh, thank you for that rundown. That's, that was fascinating. And if anybody has any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we're going to talk about the upcoming USCCB meeting. What is Eucharistic coherence and why is it such a debated topic? And if there's time, some listeners submitted questions coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we've got another one of those USCCB meetings coming up. It's going to be a virtual meeting again this time. Is that correct? Yes, it will be. Yeah. Uh, in a couple of weeks. And so one of the things that has kind of been debated, I guess you would say on, uh, on the internet, social media and stuff is the idea of Eucharistic coherence. And I know it was, it was going to be on the, on the schedule to talk about. And then some bishops suggested that we not talk about it, but last I had heard, it was still going to be on the schedule. Before we get into this, can you explain what is Eucharistic coherence? Because I feel like before a week ago, I'd never heard of that term before. Yeah. You know, I'm at the center of this controversy because I'm the <laughs> chair of the Committee on Doctrine. We're the ones that are to prepare this uh -huh. document on Eucharistic coherence. Actually, the document's going to be broader than that. It's going to be a document on the Eucharist, and one part of it will be on Eucharistic coherent consistency. Okay. Now there's a little bit of a difference in meaning between coherence and consistency. And we're going to really be using the term consistency. That means there should be a consistency between our receiving Holy communion and how we live. Okay. okay. In other words, it's inconsistent. And you could say, I guess, incoherent to be living in grave sin and still be receiving the Eucharist without repentance. You know, that's, that's incoherent. That's inconsistent. There's a, you know, we're called to bear witness to Christ. And that's why in the church's law, for example, if one's conscious, conscious of mortal sin, of having committed a mortal sin, you need to go to confession before you receive Holy Communion. Mm -hmm. The controversy that's been, I mean, there have been articles in the news, both Catholic news and secular news, and this debate going on for, for a couple months now has to do with a particular law of the church, not the one about one, one who's in mortal sin not receiving communion, but also should communion be refused to someone if they're publicly known to persistently manifest in grave sin, mm -hmm. in manifest grave sin. So there's a lot of debate going on. And, and um, the, there was a Archbishop Gomez, the president of the USCCB, asked me 
if the Committee on Doctrine, if we would produce this document, write this document, and in a broader context of, you know, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and the meaning of the Holy Eucharist. And because the U.S. bishops were undertaking a three-year Eucharistic initiative to help um, foster faith in the Holy Eucharist. And Archbishop Gomez had set up a working group regarding the new administration of the president and the churches working together with him. And and one of the recommendations was, you know, that we have this document on the Eucharist because of some of the scandal that's out there um, because of especially the president's support of, of abortion and funding of abortion, et cetera. That's where the debate comes in. You know, a lot of people are, are saying it's scandalous that he should not be admitted to communion and others like him. And then there's those who are on the other side saying he shouldn't be singled out. You know, our task was not to pinpoint one particular person like Joseph Biden. I mean, it's, it's much broader than that. And then of course we had the letter from Cardinal Ladaria of the congregation for the doctor of the faith. So, so all this debate and it's kind of gotten, you know, thankfully, even though I'm at the center, uh, I'm, you know, kind of, in the middle of this because of doing the, um, the document, I'm, I'm the one who's going to present. I got permission by the way, from the administrative committee of the USCCB back in March to proceed with bringing this to the whole body of bishops in June, because this would be a document from the U S bishops, even though the committee on doctrine would write it. Mm-hmm. So you have to have the full body approve us going forth with writing it. And then once we write it, we'd bring it back to the bishops in November for approval. Well, what has happened is there was this effort to to even get it off the agenda in June. I was a little bit upset with that because, you know, like, why can't we at least discuss it? Right. And if, if they, I mean, we have a procedure in the USCCB. So let's say when the, when the Arch, Archbishop Gomez presents this, this uh, item on the agenda, you know, there's always the the, the consider, approval of the agenda at the beginning of a meeting. Hmm. So they could have at that point said, oh, we, someone could have made the motion to get it off the agenda instead of doing all this, you know, behind the scenes, trying to thwart this document, which was pretty upsetting to me. So I do think uh, I will be, well, I will be presenting it at the June meeting. Okay. Uh, Archbishop Gomez, even though some have said, asked him to take it off, he said, no, we're going to follow the procedures of USCCB and I'll present it to the bishops. They'll be able to ask questions, make comments. We have an outline of the document. And really what I'm just asking for is, is to be able to, to do a draft document that would then be considered at the November meeting. So mm-hmm. I'm cautiously optimistic that I'll get the majority of bishops to vote in favor of us doing this document. And, uh, and then we'll move forward from there. When did this start? When did Archbishop Gomez ask you to prepare this? I think it was in January. Yeah, I think it was around the time of the inauguration. Mm -hmm. And then I had a a meeting, I think it was in January or February, with with the Committee on Doctrine, with my committee. And they were in support of, of doing it. And then I presented it, as I mentioned, to the Administrative Committee at the meeting in March. And it was nearly unanimous you know, from the administrative Mm -hmm. committee, which is about 25 bishops that we go forward to present this to the full body of bishops in June. And so I assume the outline that you have prepared is all done and that's ready. It is. 
to go? Oh, yeah. I've so, already, the bishops all have the outline. Oh, okay. And the whole issue of Eucharistic coherence is just one part of right. the, or Eucharistic consistency is one part of the document. And of course, it's the controversial part. Right. <laughs> so how long is an outline like this? this- it's a two-page outline that, oh, okay. I've sent, that we've sent to all the bishops. And then how yeah. long would the final document be? Oh, I don't know yet. Um, I mean, it could be lengthy, but, uh, you know, the longer it is, less people read it. So so we'll have to try to uh, not let it be too long. Uh, but it's such an important topic. And I think I want to have a really excellent and beautiful theological document. That's my hope. And is it intended for mostly clergy, those that are involved with the parish? Or is this for the average Catholic to, to read a document like this? For everyone, for the average Catholic too, I I want it to be, uh, and it would be a uh, a document or a pastoral letter, whatever we call it, from the U.S. bishops. Okay. So in November, we need a two thirds majority of the bishops to approve it for publication. Okay. So keep this in your prayers, everybody who's listening. I think yeah. it's so very very important. Oh, why is it so very very important? Well, I'd say one of the things is the, as we saw in certain polls a year or two ago about the decline in the belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So, as I said, that's part of the document, the beginning, where we talk about the reality of Jesus's presence in the Eucharist. And we'll talk about the meaning of the Eucharist in, in our lives, Eucharist as a sacrifice, what Holy Communion means for us. Also, then, that whole idea of living, striving to live lives that are consistent with our faith in the Eucharist, with receiving Holy Communion and the responsibility that we have to live in a life of grace, to live truly what we profess and to be in communion with the teaching of the church. You know, mm-hmm. that's important, very important. You know, St. Paul gave that uh, warning in his first letter to the Corinthians about really the the sacrilege of receiving Holy Communion unworthily. Mm-hmm. So we want to really emphasize the uh, importance of the worthy reception of, of Holy Communion. Right. All right. Well, I don't think we're going to have time for our listener submitted questions, but a reminder that this Saturday is an ordination for the priesthood. We have seven men that will be ordained it's not open to the public, but the diocese will be live streaming the video on uh, probably Facebook and YouTube is typically that it's available. Uh, Redeemer Radio will also be broadcasting the ordination mass. So that's Saturday, June 5th at 11 a.m. You can listen to Redeemer Radio or stream it through the diocesan website. People can also check out org slash seminarians for profiles of the seven men. Uh, maybe we can talk about them a little bit next week as well. So keep our deacons slash future priests in your prayers as they prepare for ordination this Saturday and join in if you can listen in or watch it online. And reminder, if you have any questions, you can text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. Thank you again, Bishop, for another great episode. Can we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Join Bishop and Kyle for next week's episode to learn more about this weekend's ordination mass to the priesthood. Find out about each of the men to be ordained and get some insight on how the mass is planned. Also on next week's episode, St. Anthony of Padua. The name may sound familiar since he's usually the saint we pray to when looking for something, but there is so much more to his story. Find out next week. Make sure you don't miss any new episodes by subscribing to our podcast. Search for Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe. You'll get a notification as soon as a new episode is available, which is each Wednesday. Did you know there's almost 200 past episodes of Truth and Charity? Go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop to see all the topics that have been covered, ranging from church news to saints to sacraments. You can listen to episodes anytime. And if you have a favorite, it's easy to share that episode with a friend. So be sure to listen to Redeemer Radio Saturday morning at 11 for our live coverage of the ordination mass. You'll hear Bishop Rhodes ordain seven men to the holy priesthood. Commentary will be provided by two University of St. Francis professors, Dr. Lewis Pearson and Dr. Alex Giltner. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.